This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Women Fit at 50, A Guide to Living Long. And the author is Mary Catherine Macklin. And Mary joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mary. Hello, thank you for inviting me to the show. Well, this is going to be a great discussion, and also you're going to give us some tips on how to stay fit. Uh, and it isn't just about the age 50, uh, as you will point out, but well, there's a whole bunch of us that are 50 and order, older now, and we need to get moving. This is what you say. Women Fit at 50 is about improving your chances to live a longer and healthier life. It is a book written to inspire women to make changes by understanding the impact of health habits and the tools to begin making changes. For women who want to increase their level of fitness but need to be inspired to get started or to stay motivated. And, well, as someone said, uh, you know, I'm just waiting for somebody to motivate me. And somebody else said, well, what if that person doesn't show up? (laughs) (laughs) So so, uh, you're here to help us, Mary. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write your book. Okay. Well, I'm a nurse practitioner. I work in a cardiology practice and have for a number of years uh, been involved in cardiac care in one level or another. And it was through my work that I see people who are both suffering from heart disease and following that trying to prevent it worsening or to take charge of their life by controlling their risk factors and, you know, helping them to become motivated to do that and to understand the importance of it. I mean, at the same time, I do write in the beginning of the book that I was at an event which was just a little mini triathlon uh, back of two years ago, a little over two years ago, and I was really taken by the number of people there and who were not the typical fitness buff, you know, not everybody was in perfect shape and perfect form and all that, but they were just all there participating for the sake of their health and some people struggling, but finishing um, many people like me who have been active throughout their lives, but it wasn't the point to come in first or I was really not doing it so much for my time. It was just because it was a fun event and something that motivated me to um, take on the challenge. So I was really inspired by everybody there, all the women uh, and men, of course, but um, after that decided that if I could help anybody, even one or two people, by writing a book um, to provide some strategies for how to take charge, then it was worth the effort that went into writing it. And that's really what got me started on it. And two years later, I came up with a almost finished copy. <laughs> well, that's fantastic, Mary. Uh, you say that it often surprises you how many people don't understand the impact of lifestyle on their health. Why is that such a misunderstanding? Well, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure we really know the answer. Um, I do believe that there's some degree of not wanting to know, not um, 
realizing that it matters a lot. So there's a factor of denial in there. People think if I don't pay attention to it, then it really doesn't exist. I think that's one factor. And the other thing probably is people really don't know. They've never been educated. They haven't um, had the resources to read about it, hear about it, be on the Internet and get information about how it matters and why it matters. So I think it's a multitude of factors that go into it. And then we all get into our habits that are really hard to break. And in order to address the negative lifestyles, we need to be someone who takes on, you know, wanting to know about that. And it might not even be a conscious thing that, you know, we all think we're okay, we're invincible, we're not going to be affected by what the problem is. So it's a matter of, you know, education to a large degree. But um, I think it's also, you know, like I said, not wanting to know or not needing to know. And what we find in the work that I do is once someone does have something happen that affects their health and might scare them, and I actually write in the book about a woman who had a heart attack, and she was young, she was 50 years old, and, you know, in relatively good health, but still not doing everything that she should do. And, you know, once you have that event happen, that's a real motivator for a lot of people to say, okay, what do I need to do to really change? So part of my writing the book was to prevent the event from happening so that they can take charge before things get to a point where there's a, a negative outcome. Well, that's what you point out uh, about your book, is that several of the chapters relate stories of real, everyday women. And as you just pointed out uh, how uh, this story is in there, you also talk about small steps, because we think about this monumental thing of exercise, and sometimes it's a bit overwhelming, and, and you're breaking it down into small steps that we can hopefully we can believe that we can do. Right. And um, that was is one of the things I think that sets this book apart from others because you're absolutely right. Everybody thinks if I have 50 pounds to lose, my goal needs to be 50 pounds, and that is overwhelming. And it's a reason why people fail because the first 5 or 10 pounds is easy, but then it gets to be more difficult. So they shoot for that long-term goal, and I even have a chapter in there on goals and objectives, and the objectives are the really little small steps. So instead of saying I need to lose 50 pounds, the goal might be I'm going to lose 5 pounds. And every step you take towards your final goal is helpful, but maybe make those objectives small steps along the way so that you can see the successes as opposed to always feeling like I'm not getting there. And then the small steps, um, the other point of that was every little thing we can do helps. So even if we don't get to that 50 pounds or don't get to where, you know, I can run five miles without having to stop, um, maybe if you can run one mile or walk, you know, one mile in 20 minutes, then those are still going to be helpful even if you never make it to that final goal. So the really little things, and one of the ones that I mentioned a number of times in there is like never go into the drive-up window of anything. So if you stop <laughs> and park the car and get out and walk in, mm. it said if you always do that over a year's time, that can help you lose five pounds, just mm. that one thing. And you think, well, five pounds, what is the big deal? But also in the book I talk about 
um, certain studies that have shown that a five-pound weight loss can lower blood pressure by a certain amount. And anything you can do to lower blood pressure, even one or two or three degrees, three points, is important. So that's really one of the messages in, in it is all these little things add up. And if you can just change the little habits, then eventually, you know, you can change um, the big habits and get to that goal that you're shooting for. Chapter 13 titled The Five-Minute Rule. Tell us about this rule. Well, that actually came from my sister who was um, – someone who read parts of the book for me and she mentioned that she and one of her friends would get together and do what we often do is say well let's get together and go for a walk and then meet and then go inside and sit maybe have a cup of coffee or something beforehand and never get outside and never do what they wanted to do so they her friend actually said what we're going to do is go outside and we're going to only say we're going to walk for five minutes and at the end of five minutes if we want to turn around we will and it's kind of the same thing as i'm saying with the weight gain five pounds as opposed to 50 if you say we're going to go walk for an hour that seems like oh man i don't have an hour i have to do this i have to do that so let's just go for five minutes so you start for five minutes and at the end of five minutes if you want to be done be done but if you don't which usually people won't they'll say well let's walk five more minutes so it's breaking it down into little increments and then I, I expanded that to say, how else can you apply five minutes to other things that you do? So I gave some examples in there about just do five minutes of ab- abdominal exercises. And five minutes is better than no minutes. So don't make it, again, be like I have to do this for half an hour, that just break it into little pieces. So or five minutes of anything, five minutes of walking in place. So that in your mind, you can think, you know, I can spare five minutes when I think I can't spare an hour. And again, that helps to break the habit. The other thing is that I've pointed out a number of times in the book, one of the hardest parts of doing all this is getting going. I put it in the book as putting on your shoes and getting out the door. Because once you do that and you're out there, it's much easier to continue to do what you're doing. But it's often that initial step of getting going that holds people back. So if you look at it with just the thought of five minutes, then after that time you can make the decision whether you keep going or not. And oftentimes people will keep going because they already feel good. They're already out the door. You know, it's a nice day or whatever else motivates you to get out there. Another chapter titled Find a Friend. Mm-hmm. That sounds like uh, good advice. Yeah, and I talk in there, too, that there are studies that show that when you exercise with someone else, it makes a big difference in keeping you uh going and really making a commitment to that person in addition to making a commitment to the exercise. So finding a friend uh, helps to say, okay, every Monday and Thursday we're going to meet and we're going to do this or that together. Then it becomes more about that social relationship than just about the exercise and um, really does help people to accomplish the goal of getting out and doing what they want to do. And even since writing that, 
when um, I was doing a book event recently, and there was some women mulling about talking, and two of them were having a conversation about meeting the next day because they were going to run in the morning, and they did this often, but they were really right there making a plan. And I thought, okay, well, that's exactly what I was talking about with finding a friend is that if you can have someone else to share in that with, then it excuse me, keeps you more motivated to do what it is that you plan to do and takes away some of that um, the ease at which we can just say, I have other things that I need to do, so I'm not going to go outside, so maybe I need to you know, wash the dishes or do the laundry. But if there's someone else waiting for you, then uh, you're much more likely to follow through. How do we determine ideal body weight? There is a chart in the book on ideal body weight, and it's based on um, height. And based on your height, you look at what should your body weight be. Uh, And there's a scale in there that shows what's ideal body weight, which is up to a number of 25. 25 to 30 is considered overweight, and above 30 is considered obese. So a BMI of 29, we'll say, is considered overweight based on a person's height, how much should they weigh. Uh, And those charts, you know, you could go on the Internet and put in ideal body weight or body mass index is what BMI stands for. And there's, you know, all the charts are pretty much consistent with that. The one thing, and I do mention in there, that it's not a perfect system. So... If someone is a body mass index of 25.5, doesn't necessarily mean that they're overweight. So you have to take into account muscle mass. Um, for me, even when I look at it, I'm pretty petite, and it says that I could be less weight than I am, and I probably shouldn't be less weight than I am. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, I wrote in there about a, a younger girl who actually, in reality, is my daughter, who um, felt like she was really overweight because she's quite muscular. But when you put her in in the BMI chart, she comes in perfect. It's just that she's petite and muscular. So for her size, she was a perfect BMI, even though her clothing size might be higher than some of her other friends just because of muscle mass. So you have to be careful if you're very lean or muscular that it's really just a guide. It's not an absolute thing, but it's a very, very well-recognized and widely used tool to assess whether someone has a higher index of body fat than they should. You have 19 chapters in your book, but at the end of the book, you have six appendixes. Uh, Tell us about why you decided to put those appendixes in. Part of the strategy behind the book was to give people usable tools. So the appendixes are also incorporated into chapters, but I wanted something that people could actually write on to make it useful for themselves. And some people don't like to write in the in the inside of the book. So, for example, one of, the, I think, the most important ones is the one that's called Know Your Numbers. And I encourage people to bring this with them when they go see their health care provider because it's a tool to use to say, okay, what are my risk factors and where am I at in terms of my numbers? So we should all know what our blood pressure is, what our body mass index is, what our blood sugar is, um, and our lipid levels. And so those are on that tool 
so that someone can take it with them and actually write in what their numbers are, and I put in there as well what their targets are. So I want those tools to be usable things. That the book, the intent of the book isn't to read it once and put it down and say, well, okay, I got a few points out of that. But I hope people will go back to it as they establish their goals and really re-read parts to say, am I doing what I can do? What else can I do? You know, am I at where I should be? So those tools are designed to help someone be able to do that. And I say in a lot of places, tear them out, post them on your refrigerator, because it's the visibility of it that will remind someone what they're trying to accomplish and whether they're getting there or not. Just going to say to reiterate the know your numbers. If anyone um, says what's the one thing I should get out of this book is taking that and really saying what are my targets and how close am I to those, and if I'm not close enough, how do I get there? We have uh, less than thirty or less than a minute for one last question. So some may say, "I'm diabetic and I've already got high blood pressure. It's too late for me." Well, it's not true, and um, it's uh, mentioned in there as well that a lot of studies have shown that there's a, a number of things you can do. One is controlling your risk factors. You can get your disease under better control. Uh, it can prevent the progression because diabetes leads to other things. So if you have diabetes, get control. The prevention of heart disease is huge because diabetes, the number one killer for people with diabetes is heart disease. It's not an elevated blood sugar problem. I mean, that's what causes it, but it's really heart disease. So it's never too late. The bottom line is it's never too late. And just get up and move, start moving, keep moving. Uh, It doesn't matter necessarily what someone does. Running a foot race isn't the goal. The goal is just get moving and stay moving for the rest of your life. The title of the book, Women, Fit at 50, A Guide to Living Long, and the author is Mary Catherine Macklin. Mary, tell us how to get your book. Well, there are a number of ways. Um, Authorhouse.com slash bookstore is one. It is available on Amazon.com. And um, as of very recently, it's available as well at the Barnes & Noble's um, website. And for anyone local to my area, um, there are some bookstores carrying it, and I'm hoping that many, many more will. So that's my goal. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Great to talk to you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Girlfriend It is on Tugginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. 
the girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, No Blue Sky, an American traveler's glimpse of China. And the author is Glenda Burkett, and Glenda joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Glenda. Hi, Steve. How are you today? Well, I'm doing great, and great will be this discussion about taking a journey to China, the mysterious China to most people, even to yourself, you say, you've been there, it's still difficult to get your mind around it. It absolutely is. Well, let me read a couple things what you have written about your book. You say, China is a new frontier for travelers quickly assuming its place among the world's top travel destinations. There has never been a better time to experience the wonders of China. You also say No Blue Sky is a book designed to help the traveler enjoy their stay in China, whether it's learning about how to plan for the trip or what to see or do when you arrive in China. No Blue Sky is packed full of suggestions and ideas on how to make your trip to China more enjoyable and less stressful. And I guess the key phrase right there is less stressful, right? It is less stressful. Um, Most people, when they want to visit a foreign country, they pick up travel books of one type or another, and they're chock full of which restaurant to go to or which hotel to go to. But Often they don't have real-life experiences and some of the real-life uh, things that will happen to you when you travel. And I think my book is a little different in that I wanted to share what really happened and um, the sights and sounds and smells that we experienced when we were there. China, officially called the People's Republic of China. And, of course, we all know that it's a communistic nation. Now, when you first went there, was there any concerns, any even fears, anxieties that you were going into this nation of such tight control of its citizens? I did have some apprehensions. Um, I I love America and I love our freedom and I love the fact that we have um, people willing to fight for our country and what's right. And I was concerned a little bit to the extent if I get there and something goes wrong, will I be able to get back home? So when you first got there, what was your first impression like after just a few days? What were you feeling? You know, your first impression is one of awe and wow, I can't believe this. Um, for me, it was at least because you fly into 
arguably the most modern airports in the world today. And the sights and sounds upon your arrival are everything from um, Prada shoes to Gucci handbags. And uh, all the shops all around the hotels where we stayed were as upscale as any uh, New York or Paris shopping experience. And construction is just, as they say, skyrocketing because of all the buildings that are going up. Absolutely. I think I saw more cranes in China in the short period of time I was there than I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, you know, the National Geographic, you report that nearly half the world's construction cranes were in operation in Shanghai alone. That's just one city. Of course, that's a huge city. It is a huge city. What were your biggest surprises? My biggest surprise was how friendly the people were. Um, to the extent that I could interact with people, um, I don't know the language, so that's often an issue. But when I was able to talk with somebody who speaks English, they were very interested in me as I was interested in them. Um, that was kind of exciting to see that uh, the Chinese people want to, wanted to interact. Uh, one of the places that I was fortunate to visit was a children's school and to watch the young Chinese children um, just want to understand and learn English and they were so proud of their English speaking capabilities. That was exciting. Now your book helps us to know how to plan for this trip. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, first and foremost for me was just making sure I knew what I needed to get in and out of the country. And something as simple as a visa, I've traveled to lots of countries where you need a visa and you can purchase the visa as you enter the country. That's not the case in China. As, as a matter of fact, um, I had to send off to have my visa prepared. And if you don't appear in person at the visa office, you actually have have an agent that you hire to appear on your behalf. And there are a very limited number of places where you can get a visa to China. So that was the first thing, was making sure we had all of our documentation in place. And then, of course, um, having been in many foreign countries where I wasn't uh, as prepared as I perhaps should have been, everything from medications to the right types of clothing or shoes, I wanted to make sure that I had all of those things in order. So I always take a miniature medicine chest um, right along with, you know, the right amount of clothing and shoes. Also, to help us prepare for the culture, this may sound a bit strange to us here in this country, but we better be prepared for a lot of spitting and burping, you say. It's just a way of life. <laughs> it is a way of life there. Um the Chinese people have interesting habits, uh, spitting, burping, as well as uh, smoking in very public places is uh, very common there. And one of my big concerns about going to China not only was the air quality, but also the number of people who smoke in China. And one of the uh, concerns I have is that uh, their government does nothing to uh, promote 
good health habits by not smoking, or um, more importantly, their government owns most of the tobacco manufacturing, and so China may have a huge health problem in the future because of that. Did you ever fear for your safety while you were there? Coincidentally, um, only one time was I a little concerned, and it wasn't necessarily that I thought somebody would hurt me intentionally. It was just how crowded it was. Um, we visited Tiananmen Square, and unfortunately, it was one of those days when there was no blue sky and a lot of rain. And to seek some shelter, we went into one of the alcoves leading out into the main mall um, coming out of Tiananmen Square. And we were standing in this alcove um, as well as maybe 50 other people. And as the rain continued, more and more people started coming into these tunnels, these alcoves, and more and more people started coming into them. And I now understand what it must be like to be a sardine in a can because the people just kept crowding and crowding in. And at one point, um, you know, I felt like I was, you know, going to be smushed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yes, everything is different and when we go to another country, but in the case of China, it can be very, very different. What would you say some of the top uh, things we should do when we go to China? Well, in my book, I wanted to let my reader know what were my favorite things to do. And, of course, I would say that no trip to China would be complete without going to see the Great Wall. Um, there are several places where you can see the Great Wall in China. Some, unfortunately, have become uh, quite the tourist attraction. And um, I did visit the Great Wall just north of Beijing at the Bottling Hill um, area of the Great Wall. Um, we were there, fortunately, on a day that was not so crowded with tourists, but certainly is something that every visitor would want to do to see the Great Wall. Um, my second highlight of my trip was uh, visiting the Terracotta Warriors um, in Xi'an. I was uh, amazed at the unearthing process and how um, distinct and how lifelike the remains are from the unearthed terracotta warriors and um, the pieces and how they've reconstructed these warriors. It was absolutely fascinating. So those would be my top two things that I would say you must see. So you say do your homework, don't go to China unprepared. Of course, your book is going to be a great asset, a great tool to help us to do this and uh, even get to know some of uh, the history and culture before you, uh, you can, before you go, because then you can really appreciate what you hear and see and smell. Did you get a chance to talk to any of the uh, residents, the citizens of China? 
We did talk to lots of folks. Um, in the smaller towns, um, I was fortunate to be on a riverboat on the Yangtze River for five days, and we stopped along the river at various towns along the river, some quite large and others uh, smaller towns. And it was interesting to go into the town, to the small markets. Of course, everyone has something for sale there, and while it may not be a value to you, um, it was certainly a value to hear their story and talk with them about how they made it or what their life was about. And so I did get to talk to folks, and that was very interesting. Now, we know that China is a dictatorship, and there's no freedom of press, speech, or religion. Did you feel that? Did you sense that when you were there? Um, a little bit, Steve. Um, there was a time when I was in the main Tiananmen Square coming out of the Forbidden City area, and there were quite a few military uh, folks training on that square, and I was taking photographs of the square, and someone came up to me and stopped me from taking photographs. Um, they didn't want me to take any pictures with any military person dressed in military clothing. Um, I did not have any trouble using the Internet, getting onto my uh, personal email accounts or using telephones or anything like that. But, you know, there's never a day that you don't pick up the Wall Street Journal and hear about China's censorship and the fact that the social media that we use here today um, often is not available there. So it is still a communist country, and the government does control many, many things. You encourage everyone to see as much as you can. Don't miss the big stuff or the day-to-day -day small stuff. Uh, what, what's some of the day-to-day -day small stuff? Um, something as interesting as a market, uh, what the food looks like, how the food's prepared. Um, it was interesting, Steve, to walk into a pretty upscale shopping center with um, just the highest end department stores and various stores. And right there in the middle of the mall was a food outlet, and they were serving duck with the head on. Um, you know, I'm not a prude of any kind, but I don't normally get my duck that way. <laughs> not used <laughs> so to that. So lots of no. small stuff um, in the little gift shops, just watching um, the habits of people and their mannerisms and how polite the shop owners were and um, then going out onto the street and someone, I'll use the word hawking something, how unfriendly they might be. So it was interesting to see all all of the aspects of China. And of course, from a political view, we know that China will use torture, execution, and forced abortions. Uh, what is it in China? How many children can a family have? Well, just one child, typically, although um, I was with a very uh, well uh, read tour guide and he was very kind about telling us various things and when I asked him about his family he had been divorced and has a child with his first wife and was able to have a child with his second wife and so um, while there is a one child rule 
Um, there are some folks who do have more than one child. Um, I do see that might one day lead to be a problem, Steve. If you think about it, in China, often when a young couple gets married, um, they are living with both her parents and with his parents. So imagine that newborn baby girl uh, or baby boy, and imagine having six adults taking care of you. <laughs> well, that is a little different elsewhere, that's for sure, especially here in this country. Uh, we appreciate your sharing with us, Glenda, of your trip to China. And, and uh, why don't you give us a closing thought, uh, comment about your book? Well, there are many, many things to see and do, many, many places to go. For me, China was of interest because of the possibility or the probability of one day China being a the, the major world power. Um, here in the United States, we've always had that luxury of being the world power, and um, our gross domestic domestic products, um, when we look at the size of our importing and exporting, what China's doing, um, the whole system, the number of people in China, um, they're a force to be reckoned with, and we need to understand China in order to understand how we're going to grow in the future as a country and individually. The title of the book, No Blue Sky. An American Traveler's Glimpse of China. And the author is Glenda Burkett. Glenda, tell us how to get your book. Well, my book's available through authorhousepublishing.com, and I'd recommend um, checking it out there or any of the local stores such as Barnes & Noble. You can order the copies there or online at um, other retail booksellers. Thank you, Glenda, for being on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899. 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. 
Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Awesome Adventures of Alice Marie Von Bugaboo and Her Unusual Family. And the author is Stephen Ginsberg. And Dr. Ginsberg joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Dr. Ginsberg. Hi, Steve. Well, you have done a remarkable job of setting some stories in the context of, as you put it, proper values. And we're going to talk about the details about what that means. But you say this, I've written a book that takes place in a pretend town in the Midwest near Kalamazoo, Michigan, where my children live. It features the Von Bugaboo family, a family that my own mother had made up in the bedtime stories when my sister and I were only small children in the early 40s and is illustrated by my 10-year-old grandson, Drew. You also say this, this is a a book of a composite of eight stories involving the everyday life of a family living in this small hypothetical town. I love the name of the town, Porcupine Heights. <laughs> so, Dr. Ginsburg, why the book? Originally, the book started out um, as a uh, a. Uh, a uh, homage to my mother, who has passed many years ago, uh, and uh, the stories that she told, which are actually not reproduced in this book because it was so many years ago, I cannot remember the details, but I did remember the title, and uh, I had told those stories to my own children and to my uh, grandchildren, and I wanted to serve as a kind of a familial reminder to my family of uh, their past, uh, their great-grandmother, uh, their grandmother, uh, and myself. And uh, so it started off that way, and uh, when I was lucky enough to be blessed with a very precocious grandson, uh, we decided to do this book as a, uh, a family project, and he would do the illustrations because uh, I think I wanted him to be involved because I think uh, it, when you personalize a book like that, it it means much more to uh, the person that participates than than not. So, uh, with his help, we we did this book, and uh, uh, during the course of it, I I wanted to write uh, uh, chapters that I think would display the the values that we had in our family growing up, and I think it was responsible for uh, the way. Uh, my sister and I were able to have a happy childhood, and I think it gave on uh, more to uh, our grandchildren, and they were raised in a very similar manner. So that book was really an homage to my mother, and uh, it kind of grew from there like Topsy. Well, tell us about the Von Bugaboo family. Well, uh the story involves a, a family living in um, the Midwest part of the United States. Uh, my two children uh, both live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. So 
I obviously have been out there uh, uh, on many occasions to visit. So it, 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 it brings together both the family stories and actual real-life places, uh, which I thought would have a lot of significance to the people living in southwest Michigan and the fact that Michigan now is uh, uh, undergoing a, a tremendous economic recession. I thought it would be a boost to their uh, self-esteem as well and, uh, and that it would be a fun thing to do. So uh, it combines stories of uh, places that I have actually visited, uh, places such as Kalamazoo, the resort of Boyne Mountain, uh, the uh, uh, seashore resort of Ocean City, Maryland, that my wife and I both have a home at, uh, things and recollections that I've had of California where I grew Grew up, so basically it was centered there. Uh, it's an accurate portrayal of real life circumstances in uh, Kalamazoo area, uh, but it was really just that was just the uh, uh, the girders and the structure for telling the stories. Now the oldest child, uh, who is. Alice Marie, and of course, your title includes her name in it. Uh, why is she the focus uh, of this family, uh, this unusual family, as you put it? Because there, there's another, let's see, there's another uh, sister and two brothers there, too. That's right. Yeah. Well, actually, the children, um, other than Alice Marie, were all from my imagination, uh, because those are the stories that I told my kids and the grandchildren uh, involving uh, all four children. But my mother only limited to Alice Marie, so I kind of expanded that. Uh, she was focused primarily because it was my mother's focus, and also she became kind of, in a sense, a driving force, the one with a level head, the one to keep the other kids in line, um, and uh, so it kind of focused on her, but it was just a natural outgrowth of uh, the fact that she was the original and only character from my mother's stories. So Alice Marie can be a bit bossy at times. She certainly can, and she always has been. She... she uh, is almost in, in a sense, uh, she is um, the one that controls the other children to the sense that she keeps them on the straight and narrow. And as I point out in the original introduction, uh, they are given lots of freedom to roam around her safe little city, uh, but it's Alice that's ultimately responsible for the other children's welfare. So there are very strict rules. Yeah, I think there are strict rules, but I think it's uh, related more to the fact that uh, the kids wanted to guard their freedoms and, and the things that they wanted to do independently. And so they did have to follow rules that their parents laid down, which as a parent, and uh, we all know, are uh, the things that you do to safeguard your children's uh, happiness and make sure they don't get into any trouble. So you give them rules. But who's there to enforce it? Alice Marie. So we have eight stories here. Uh, for example, some of the titles, The Great Chocolate Pudding Cook-Off, <laughs> uh, A Jolly Good Visit to the Zoo, another one, uh, Back to School After a Wonderful Summer. So where did you come up with these uh, different stories, I, I guess, just uh, kept embellishing your mother's stories, like you say. Well, to some degree they were. Most of them were ones that I made up. Um, primarily, the, uh, the one about the chocolate pudding is one that I made up and told my grandchildren. Uh, and there are little uh, parts of it that I recall from the stories that I told them. Uh, for example, uh, the, the bowl that they used to mix the chocolate pudding is so huge that uh, they were afraid that they might fall into it if they reached over the edge to uh, uh, to stir it. So they came up with the idea 
Actually, one of the brothers came up with the idea of hooking together father suspenders uh, so that they could have uh, the smallest child, who would be Johnny in the book. Uh, he could be lowered over the bowl by hooking the suspenders uh, over the light fixture up above, and then they would lower him gently over the bowl with a big spoon, and he could stir it. Uh, th- those kinds of uh, things were stories that I actually told, and uh, and I think they're, uh, they're 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 humorous, they're funny. I think children can relate to that. A lot of children like to cook and like to get into the kitchen to help. But uh, the moral issue here was that the children were given the uh, the opportunity. Opportunity to actually do the cooking. They weren't the helpers. They were given the responsibility of doing it. And they turned out to be so successful at doing it that they were sure that their, um, uh, that their recipe for making chocolate pudding would be incorporated in a, in a candy and uh, dessert store in, uh, in Porcupine Heights. So it was uh, the reward for the hard work that they put in. So Alice Marie is 10 years old, and Gwendolyn, how old is she? She's about eight, and uh, Hodge is around six, and Johnny is around four and a half. So the readers of your story, the age group that you're aimed at? Well, I think I wrote it in a manner with vocabulary words that could be explained by the parents to the children, but many of the children that uh, that would uh, read the book would understand them. It's geared more for a little bit older child, maybe from the ages of eight to twelve. So the Von Bugaboo family, you're using them to set an example, as you put it, of how to live a life of grace based upon always trying to do what is right and proper. That's right. Exactly. That sounds like right out of the uh, golden age of the 50s when uh, I grew up, right? Uh, it's, I'm out of the golden age of the 50s. <laughs> yes. So, you know, that was an amazing time. And where everybody kind of knew each other and neighbors watched out for each other's kids. And it's, uh, it is, it was a beautiful time to uh, grow up. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has been lost, uh, in today's, uh, society. I think because of the economy and because of, uh, of a materialistic uh, tendency in our society, it often involves both parents having to work to support the family. And when you don't have a mother home, uh, not that we want to necessarily repeat, uh, leave it to Beaver, but uh, you, it's nice to have a parental influence at home, be it the father or the mother. And uh, that's being lost now. And children uh, have learned to kind of raise themselves to some degree. Um, and uh, and I think that means that they're under the influence of other people other than their parents. And who knows what their um, what their teachings would then be. Because your stories point out how important the family is, the basic unit of a civilized society. I think so, yeah. So this is going to be a series? I'm hoping to. It'll depend a little bit on the reception of the first book, um, but I'm hoping to do that. Uh, And as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm working now on a book on uh, tips for uh, helpful parenting um, uh, that I'm doing in collaboration with my wife and my children and uh, uh, some psychologists. Uh, So, you know, I'm hoping to make uh, it into a series, but we'll have to kind of wait and see how that goes. So as you look at today's society and, of course, this motivation to write this book, uh, not only because it's a tribute to your mother, but also because you believe in these principles so well, 
What are some of these principles that, you, you know, for example, you write about mutual love and respect, how important that is. Uh, give us some of those principles. Well, I, I feel that most uh, happy uh, childhoods involve an awful lot of love, and I think it has to be a demonstrable love that the children feel from their parents, and it has to be a love that is, you know, uh, not conditional in any way. Um, so I think the basic uh, thread throughout the entire book is the relationship of the parents to their children and the parents' expectations for their children, which would be on a you know, relatively high level. Uh, uh, you, you certainly can't tell a child when he's eight years old or six years old that he's going to be a, a neurosurgeon, but you certainly can tell him that he needs to treat other people properly. He needs to show a lot of caring and love for his friends, and that in itself can serve as an example for the other children because we mentioned earlier that children's attitudes do affect their friends. And so if you if you lead a relatively high life, if you don't take advantage of other people, if you give people credit for all the wonderful things that they have, uh, that can set an example for the way other people treat each other. So I tried to weave this through the entire book, the love of the parents and the respect that people have for each other. And that begins, I think, in the home. And if the parents love and respect their children, then I think they will get this in return. And then this thing will kind of emanate out from the family and it will affect their friends as well. Another chapter in the book talks about the family vacation, end of the summer. That's a, that's an important thing to be doing, isn't it, as a family? I think the more things we do together, the better. Um, and that was also throughout the book that uh, the family does many, many things together. Uh, that, that chapter came about... Uh, uh, I was thinking one day about Ocean City, Maryland, which is a wonderful resort community, and my wife and I are lucky enough to have a home out there. And uh, so I was thinking that uh, I knew the area well. I knew the places that were there and the things that were available. And um, the, the chapter starts off with the children uh, having the opportunity of trying to convince the other members of the family uh, where they themselves would like to take the vacation. So they kind of do this on a ballot. Everybody presents their ideas. One child suggests that they go to Alaska. Another child says we should go to the Grand Canyon. And the, the two girls get together. They want to go to Disney World in Florida. Uh, and the parents suggest maybe Ocean City, Maryland. Um, because the parents' idea of Ocean City, Maryland would involve a lot of the things uh, as activities that the other children wanted to do in their vacation spots, then, and the children all had a, a right to debate it, uh, they would then have a vote. And this was a tradition that was passed on from Father Van Bogabu's family. So I mentioned that, that they used to have a voting every year about where they would go on their family vacation. But they settled in Ocean City, Maryland, where uh, uh, Mr. Van Bogabu's uh, parents had recently bought a home. And so the children drive uh, in the family uh, car out there with their parents and and they participate in a lot of activities that my wife and I do in Ocean City and and it really is a wonderful place so they had a great vacation and they got to visit their grandparents they got to involve the seashore and they got to go on canoes and horseback riding and go to great restaurants they learned to eat uh, blue crabs and you know, which is a Maryland tradition so I kind of tied together a family vacation with an area that I knew very well and you end on a chapter, uh, which obviously it may be the last chapter, but it's certainly not the least in its uh, significance because it's titled The True Meaning of Thanksgiving. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the chapter starts off with um, the weather turning cold in, in uh, Michigan, and anybody that lives in the Midwest knows how cold that can be, and how the family uh, uh, children uh, kind of uh, get to know a Native American family that has recently moved to the area. Um, and some kindness that uh, one of their uh, the children's friends has shown towards a little Native American girl as far as loaning her her coat when it was uh, cold out, uh, and the fact that uh, the Von Boogaboo family invites both the Native American family and their children, of course, and another family which is involved in the book, which is a family from Ireland, to their home uh, for Thanksgiving. And uh, so it brings together, uh, in a sense, I tried to create the fact that there were some people from Ireland who would be, in a sense, uh, a metaphor for the uh, immigrants from Europe, uh, the Native Americans that were involved in in Thanksgiving, and plus uh, the parents and grandparents of the Von Boogaboos are invited to a family dinner, and how much at the end of the book these uh, uh, other families appreciate the kindness that they have shown towards them and how uh, their actions have made their coming to this new city to be so much easier. So that was the moral principle again is the uh, never judge a person by you know the color of their skin or an accent but the kind of people that they really are and show kindness to everybody and when you reach out and you show kindness to other people uh, then it is returned and so these friendships will blossom amongst these three families and it will make everybody's life a much more pleasant thing. The title of the book, The Awesome Adventures of Alice Marie Von Bugaboo and Her Unusual Family, and the author is Stephen Ginsberg. Dr. Ginsberg, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's distributed through Author House Book Seller, uh, or you can obtain it on Barnes & Noble's uh, 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 ebook or, or web page. Uh, you can get it through Amazon.com, or it should be available to order through any of your local bookstores. Thank you very much, Doctor, for being with us on Author Talk. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure.